Welcome to the Coming Out of the Dark Bible Study with Pastor John. Tonight's study will be in the book of Colossians. We invite you to join us at 1 Oakley Avenue in North Providence, Rhode Island. This podcast is presented by The Way Ministries, supported by listeners like you. For donations, live videos, podcasts, and more, please visit www.thewayministriesri.org. Thank you and have a great day. the dark bible study i want to thank everyone for coming out tonight to get a portion of god's word amen first and foremost i'd like to thank our lord and savior jesus christ tonight for making this all possible for us by becoming the final sacrifice for our sins so we could have a new life spiritual life and a new purpose here for all who believe in the one and only son of god but he's grateful and thankful for that but i'd like to thank all the people that faithfully serve in the ministry I'm glad we got here all safely. If you have a cell phone, can you please silence it? We'll start off with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us this awesome opportunity tonight, Lord, to gather together to worship, honor, and glorify you, Lord. And please your name above all names, Lord, even our own, as all of us fight to put you first in our lives, Lord. Help us to... Understand your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts, Lord. Help us to put our trust in you each and every day, Lord, as we open our eyes and live a life worthy of our call, Lord. Not only be hearers of the word, but grow and become doers of the word, Lord, so we can be a living example of you living through us, Lord. We're just so grateful for everyone here and the ministry you've given us, Lord. Let us always be responsible and accountable to it, Lord, as we give you glory with honorable lives, Father. And I pray for our nation and the other nations of the world, Lord, that you restore peace among them, Lord, and put your Holy Spirit in them as they believe in you, Lord. And let everything we do tonight be led by your Spirit, Lord, and not my flesh. And in Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen and amen. Okay, we're going to stand. Brittany's going to come up and sing, and we're going to get started.
How's everybody doing tonight, okay? It's good to see everybody. Better now, right? <laughs> Busy day, as always. Alright, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 54. We'll get started there tonight. As we continue our study in Colossians. Very good study. All of God's words are good. I'm starting verse 7 and come up. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will take you back. In a burst of anger I turned my face away for a little while, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer, just as I swore in the time of Noah that I would never again let a flood cover the earth. So now I swear that I will never again be angry and punish you. Thank God. For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. Thank you, Jesus. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord. Who has mercy on you? O storm-battered city, troubled and desolate, I will rebuild you with precious jewels and make your fountains from lapis lazuli. I will make your towers of sparkling rubies, your gates of shining gems, and your walls of precious pearls, stones. I will teach all your children, and they will enjoy great peace. You will be secure under a government that is just and fair. Your enemies will stay far away. You will live in peace, and terror will not come near. If any nation comes to fight you, it is not because I sent them. Whoever attacks you will go down in defeat. For I have created the blacksmith who fans the coals beneath the forge and makes the weapons of destruction. And I have created the armies that destroy. But in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice that raised, is raised up again to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. Amen? That's awesome. Well, I like the way the King James says, says, No weapon formed against me shall prosper, and every tongue that rises against me in judgment thou shalt condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me says the Lord. Amen. So that's an awesome promise. If you make a decision to serve the Lord, he will always protect his family and his people, his believers. Amen. So that's a good choice to make, to have that kind of protection. You want the creator to protect you, trust me, in this, this world full of wolves, for sure. All right, let us turn to Colossians. Do we remember where we left off? We started in Colossians chapter 3. I believe we started, uh, ended in verse 4. And let me just give a little summary again of Colossians. We're going to begin in verse, uh, chapter 3. Colossians shows Jesus Christ's divine characteristics. 
the Creator, the One from whom all things consist, the All-Powerful One, the Master of Time and Space, the Head of the Church. This infinite, eternal, powerful being is shown in this epistle to be personal. He is shown to be the one who becomes our life. It is him we are rooted in, and therefore it is from his life that we, deri that we derive our nourishment from. It is true that you are what you eat. <laughs> and, we <laughs> and we are eating the bread of life and drinking living water which gives us real, living, abundant life. That is life that is only found in Christ because He is the source of life and therefore real life can only be from Him. The option outside of Christ is death and that is why Christ has to become our life. For if we want life, we will want Christ. We will need to know the life Himself and that is only by knowing the truth Himself which is in His Word. How amazing to know that the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form like it tells us in Colossians 2.9. This is almost an incomprehensible truth, but a wonderful reality. This fullness is what God wants to give us. He wants to give us his entire life, his entire righteousness, and this he gave to us by giving us his son. He has given us the same love that he loved his son with from eternity, that is eternal life, eternal fellowship, as Jesus said, that the love with which you love me may be in them. John 17, 26. Our new life in Christ changes our interest. We become interested in the things pertaining to life rather than the things in the world which pertain to death. How about a big amen there? We now have the fragrance of Christ, and it is with this fragrance that we draw near to God. And if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. As Colossians teaches us, let's put on the new self and draw near to God, like it tells us in Colossians 3.10. How about a big amen for that? All right. Let's go to Colossians 3. We ended in verse 4, but I'm just going to read from 1 down to 4. We'll elaborate as we go. As always, the Holy Spirit is going to be taken over. Living the new life. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, or your thoughts, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. What's the problem? We're always thinking of life down here and the problems we have on earth instead of the things of heaven. Now it says, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Now what does it mean you died to this life? When you die to this life, then nothing in this life should affect you in any way at all. So when pressures come, a dead person doesn't feel any pressure. When the temptations come, a dead person doesn't feel any temptations. It doesn't fall into temptation. When... The temptation of sin comes, a, a dead person can't sin anymore. Amen? This is what we have to understand. When anxiety comes, when you're dead, you have no anxiety. When fear comes and grips you, a dead person is not in fear anymore. He's dead. 
So now we have to understand that, and actually, we know that our new life is hidden with Christ in God. For it tells us, for you died to this life, in verse 2 and 3, this means that we should live as little desire for improper worldly pleasures as a dead person would have. The Christian's real home is where Christ lives, John 14, 2-3. This truth provides a different perspective on our lives here on earth. To think about the things of heaven means to look at life from God's perspective, okay, and to seek what he desires. This provides the antidote to materialism. We gain the proper perspective on material goods when we take God's view of them. It also provides the antidote to sensuality. By seeking what Christ desires, we have the power to break our obsession with pleasure and leisure activities. But it also provides the antidote to empty religiosity because following Christ means loving and serving in this world. Regard the world around you as God does, then you will live in harmony with him. Okay. What does it mean to be a, a, that a believer's life is hidden with Christ? Hidden means concealed and safe. This is not only a future hope, but an accomplished fact right now. Our service and conduct do not earn our salvation, but they are the results of our salvation. Take heart that your salvation is sure and live each day for Christ. How about a big amen for that? Awesome. The book of Colossians is awesome. We die to this life. We have a new life. As you notice, as we grow, like we start to think of things here more than we think of the things out there. Like I can't wait to come here. And every time my thoughts process is thinking, how can I help out here? Or what can we do here? My thoughts are not on any worldly stuff because it has no value. Everything, one life to life, one, one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So everything we think of and we do here for Christ, we come, we bring to eternity with us. Everything we do in the flesh gets burned up anyway. So why bother wasting time with that? As time is very short. Look at verse 4. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Okay? Christ gives us power to live for him now. Okay? And he gives us hope for the future. He will return. In the rest of this chapter, Paul explains how Christians should act now in order to be prepared for Christ's return. Okay, the first two chapters were the theological part, what he's done for us. And then the, the last two chapters, three and four, the practical application part of what we do after we get saved. Look what it says in verse 5 now. Now we know we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Oh, I love when it says that. We all have sinful earthly things lurking within us. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality. That's the first one he puts up there, you notice? And that's the biggest one that we all fall prey to. Have nothing to do with it. Sexual impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Now in the flesh, we cannot put them desires to death. That's the problem. We try to put that stuff to death in the flesh and it just gets stronger. So what we have to do is die in the flesh and live in the spirit. We have to believe what the Bible says that we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit and now we have the power to say no to them earthly things. 
We should consider ourselves dead and unresponsible, unresponsive to sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. The warning in this verse is not against sex, but against sexual perversion. Where is the line between the two? The Bible everywhere celebrates heterosexual monogamous marriage as the proper situation for sexual fulfillment. Christian men and women should be open to true love and to sexual intimacy within the commitment to a lifelong fidelity. That's God's way. The rest is dangerous and futile. Stay away. Sexual sin and perversion will drain your energies and turn your heart away from God. That's one of the biggest ones. It will turn your heart away from God. Now it says in verse 6, because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Some manuscripts read, is coming on all who disobey him. Now, the anger of God refers to God's judgment on these kinds of behavior, okay, culminating with future and final punishment of evil. When tempted to sin, remember that you must one day stand before God and answer for it. Remember that. Next time you think you're going to do something lustful or sexual, remember one day you're going to have to answer for that before God. That should give you enough healthy fear of God to say, I'm not going to do that. I love the Lord and his people. I don't want to stain him, myself, or his church. And that's exactly what it does when you do it. Don't think it just affects you. It affects, affects the people in the church and the church as a whole. Now, it says, look at verse 7. Now, you, now we're going to be able to tell if our life is still part of this world or not. It says, you used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. So, if your life is not part of the world anymore, you won't be doing them things anymore. But if you are still doing them, then that means your life is still part of this world. So you have to measure yourself against that. Just because you come to Bible study doesn't mean that you're, you're always thinking heavenly thoughts. Your life is still part of the world if you're practicing these sinful things. Now it says, but now is the time. So every day we get a new chance to do this now, to get rid of anger, the first one that comes up. How many angry people in the room? Don't even raise your hand. Paul knew when to put him in. Why did he put that one up front first? Because we all have it. And anger gives a foothold to the devil. Let me tell you something. When you get angry, all the other sins follow it. All the other sins follow it. The perversion, the sexual lust, all of it follow it. Because we try, to, we try to quench it. The next one is rage. Anger turns to rage. Malicious behavior. There it is right there. Malicious behavior. Slander. And what's the next one? Dirty language. Then the next one, don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature in all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature. Now, how do we do that? And be renewed as you learn to know your creator. Listen to what it says in this one powerful verse, verse 10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator. And what's the next thing that happens after that? And become like him. There's another thing that must follow that. And become like him. 
In verses 8 to 10, we must rid ourselves of all evil practices and immorality. Okay? Then we can commit ourselves to what Christ teaches. Paul was appealing to the commitment the believers had made and urging them to remain true to their confession of faith. They would have rid themselves of the old life, the old life, and put on the new nature given by Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit. How about an amen for that? If you have made such a commitment to Christ, are you remaining true to it? That's the question. Are you remaining faithful to that commitment you made to Christ? Thank God the Bible tells us if we're unfaithful, He remains faithful because He can't deny who He is. But let me tell you something. The Bible says do not grieve the Holy Spirit by the way you live. It grieves the Holy Spirit, which grieves the church and which grieves the body of Christ. Lying to one another disrupts unity by destroying trust. It tears down relationships and may lead to a serious conflict in a church. So don't exaggerate statistics, pass on rumors and gossip, or say things to build up your own image. Be committed to telling the truth. Jesus wants to clean your life and your church of sexual sin and verbal sin. There is no place in the kingdom of God for hedonistic sexual experimentation or for gossip, rage, and backbiting in their place witness to the world like a lighthouse on a stormy night by displaying love, faith, and hope. In their place of what? Sexual experimentation, gossip, rage, and backbiting. Instead of that, witness to the world like a lighthouse on a stormy night by displaying what? Love, faith, and hope. That has to be replaced with love, faith, and hope. Can I get an amen for this? Every Christian is in a continuing education program. The more we know of Christ and His work, the more we are being changed to be like Him. Because this process is lifelong, we must never stop learning and obeying. There is no justification for drifting along, but there is an incentive to find the rich treasures of growing in Him. It takes practice, ongoing review, patience, and concentration to keep in line with His will. How about an amen for that? So what does it mean to put on your new nature? It means that your conduct should match your faith. That's what it means. If you're a Christian, you should act like a Christian. To be a Christian means more than just making good resolutions and having good intentions. It means taking the right actions. This is a straightforward step that is as simple as putting on your clothes. You must rid yourself of all evil practices and immorality. Then you can commit yourself to what Christ teaches. If you have made such a commitment to Christ, are you remaining true to it? And what old clothes do you need to strip off? <laughs> Thank God for this, right? Thank God for His tender-hearted mercies and His matchless grace that begins anew every morning. It gives us the power to begin to overcome that powerful stuff that comes into our sin nature. It's powerful, and we all know it is. Thank God. Whenever we fall to it, we run to the cross, not away from it. The devil wants you to run away from God as you keep failing. He wants you to run to the cross where the power is 
to what? Overcome that and become more like him. Running away from him will never do it. Running to him will give you the power to achieve it. Now, in this new life, verse 11, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. That all racial ties, every background is distinguished, is gone. He lives in all of us as believers. That's why Christianity is the most powerful, unifying process we could ever get into because we accept everybody that wants to turn to him and love him, from the murderer to the thief to the sexual immoral to the homosexuals, whatever. We receive them all when they repent and turn to him. Amen? And then we can be a big family, unity and diversity, which we're talking about on Sunday. Amen? All of us come from bad places. This is a hospital for healing people. We shouldn't expect everybody to be perfect when they come to church. There's only one perfect one. That's why we're coming to learn about him. Jesus. So that's why when somebody comes into the church, we welcome them with open arms. We love them unconditionally. We love them into the kingdom. We don't beat them into the kingdom. We love them in. This, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. No, all you have to do is believe it. And then the Holy Spirit will come in and he'll start convicting the guy who, or the girl whoever's doing anything wrong. That's, what the, that's who can... It gets inside you. The, the, the Holy Spirit gets in you and convicts you. You can't stand it. It starts to gnaw at you. And he doesn't let go of you. That's the good part. When you start living sinful and doing the wrong thing, you get that gnawing inside and that torment that comes. God sends the torment till you repent of it. Remember King David? He was ready to die to sin unto death because he wouldn't ex- repent of what he did to Bathsheba's husband and the adultery that he committed until later on in his life when he finally was so broken from God putting his heavy hand on him because of them sins, he finally let go of them and repented of them. And that's what he does with us as we continue in sin. The heaviness of God, don't blame the devil, it's the heaviness of God's hand that's on you, tormenting you till you decide that you're going to stop doing it, repent and turn to God. Don't expect to lead a blessed life and answer prayers living a sinful and demonic life. It's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, it, it actually hurts the whole church. It stops it from growing. One person can stop the whole church from growing, living a sinful, immoral life. That's why it's so important to get rid of it. I want an amen for that. All right, like it says in verse 11, the Christian church should have no barriers of nationality, race, educational level, social standing, wealth, gender, religion, or power. Christ breaks down all barriers and accepts all people who come to him. How about an amen to that? So, if, if Christ accepts all people to come to him, you should accept all people that come to you. Same thing, do as I do. That's what he tells us to do. Nothing should keep us from telling others about Christ or accepting into our fellowship any and all believers, like it tells us in Ephesians 2, 14 to 15. Christians should be building bridges, not walls. Verse 12. Everybody with me so far on this? Colossians is a good book. God was prompting me to preach this for a long time, and we need to hear it. Since God chose you, listen to this now, to be the holy people he loves... 
What's next? You must clothe yourselves with what? Tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So what are you going to do? He tells us you're going to throw off your old nature and you're going to put this on when you go out into the world. This is what you're going to put on right here. Since he chose you, you must clothe yourself. Put this on. Tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. I can't believe how offended Christians get in church. When the Bible tells us to not forgive anybody who offends you. We get offended and carry resentments and start getting bitter again. Every day you get up with, you've got bitterness or resentment, give it to God and let it go. Just like you want God to let, let everything in your life go that you do that's wrong. It's only going to come back on you if you don't. It says, remember the Lord forgave you. It doesn't say, so you should forgive others. What does it say? You must forgive others. If you want to experience the forgiveness of Christ in your life, you better forgive other people. If not, you're not going to experience it. The key to forgiving others is remembering how much God has forgiven you. That's the key. It is difficult for you to forgive someone who has wronged you a little when God has forgiven you so much. Realizing God's infinite love and forgiveness can help you love and forgive others. Let God worry about the wrongs you've suffered. Don't quench your life in bitter feuding. Live renewed in love and joy. Above all, above everything else, put this on top of all that now, like a cherry on top. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. 1 Corinthians 13, love binds us all together in harmony. You walk through that door when you come into church, 1 Corinthians 13 should be in your heart. You, you're supposed to come to church prepared with a heart full of love and kindness. And whatever your sin nature has, leave it at the door. And come in with love and in unity in the spirit so we all can get along. And people that are just coming in that never heard about Christ can see something different in the unity of the church. Amen? Not bitterness and backbiting and feuding. Now, in verse 14, all the virtues that Paul encourages us to develop are perfectly bound together by love. As we clothe ourselves with these virtues, the last garment we ought to put on is on love, which holds all of the others in place. To practice any list of virtues without practicing love will lead to a distortion, fragmentation, and stagnation. To practice any list of virtues without practicing love will lead to distortion, fragmentation, and stagnation. 1 Corinthians 13. And look at verse 15. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And what's the next one? Always be thankful. Do you hear that, believers? Everybody sitting in here and the, and the angels. Always be thankful when you're in church. Be thankful that you got up this morning. Be thankful you have a church. Be thankful you have lights on. Be thankful. Be thankful. Always be thankful. It says in the Bible to always be thankful. Do you come to church always thankful? Or do you come to church with a critical, complaining spirit? 
Christians should live in peace. To live in peace does not mean that suddenly all differences of opinion are eliminated. Now listen up. But it does require that loving Christians work together despite their differences. Such love is not a feeling but a decision to meet others' needs. 1 Corinthians 13. It's a decision, not a feeling. To clothe ourselves with love leads to peace between individuals and among the members of the body of believers. Do problems in your relationship with other Christians cause open conflicts or mutual silence? Consider what you can do. Heal those relationships with love. You know when somebody's not, not happy with you, they just won't talk to you. And you can sense it. Right? Even the silent treatment, right? How you doing? Oh, hello. Hello. I love you. Love you. Away they go. <laughs> Consider what you can do to heal the relationships with love. Listen. Every morning I get up, I do this myself. I say, if there's anything that I feel that's, that's in, inside of me that's ill will toward someone, I ask Lord to forgive me for even thinking that way and to renew my spirit and give me a, a cleansed spirit. And so I forget about it. I say, give me holy amnesia. I don't want to remember it. I want to remember all the good things they do. Because the devil keeps you picking at what's wrong. And then you get bitter at people when all they ever do is try to help you. And that's why Christians get like this. Anything that one thing that's bad. Guess who that comes from? You think that's Jesus? No, you're sitting in church quoting the devil. And you're saying, What a hypocrite I am. I come to church and all I do is talk about people. Instead of loving them. I say I love you, but I talk about you every day. <laughs> the word rule comes from the language of athletics, okay? Paul tells us to let Christ's peace be umpire, a referee in our hearts. Okay? Our hearts are the center of conflict because there are feelings and desires clash. Our fears and hopes, distrust and trust, jealousy and love. How can we deal with these constant conflicts and live as God wants? Paul explains that we must decide between conflicting elements by using the rule of peace. With choice will promote peace in our souls, and which choice will promote peace in our souls and in our churches? For more peace about that, you read Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. This is where we get all this stuff. Now look at verse 16. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. Okay, look at verse 6. Although the early Christians had access to the Old Testament and freely used it, they did not yet have the New Testament or any other Christian books to study. Their stories and teachings about Christ were memorized and passed on from person to person. Sometimes the teachings were set to music, and so music became an important part of Christian worship and education. Thankful people can worship wholeheartedly. 
Gratitude opens our hearts to God's peace and enables us to put on love. Discontented people constantly calculate what's wrong with their lot in life. To increase your thankfulness, take an inventory of all you have, including your relationships, memories, abilities, and family, as well as material possessions. Use the inventory for prayers of gratitude. On Sunday before worship, quit rushing around. Instead, take time to reflect on reason for thanks. Declare Sunday as your thanks, faith, and hope day. Celebrate God's goodness to you and ask in prayer for all your needs for the week ahead. Good idea, right? Paul offers a strategy to help us live for God day by day. One, imitate Christ's compassionate, forgiving attitude. Two, let love guide your life. Three, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Four, always be thankful. Five, keep God's word in you at all times. Six, live as Jesus Christ's representative. Verse 17, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now it's telling us something here, whatever you do and whatever you say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Can we honestly sit here and say that we do that? Are we actually listening to this owner's manual that's telling us what to do? Are we actually using it? We're reading it, studying it, but are we using the owner's manual? Are we actually applying this? Are we representing the Lord? Whatever we do, we'll say, do we do it as a representative of the Lord? Or are we representing our point of view? Are we representing the flesh? Or are we representing the spirit? It's something that we have to do. It says, whatever you do. Now, in verse 17, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus means bring honor to Christ in every aspect and activity of daily living. As a Christian, you represent Christ at all times, wherever you go, and whatever you say. What impression do people have of Christ when they see or talk with you? What changes would you make in your life in order to honor Christ? Something to think about, right? Instructions for Christian households. Here we go. Let's bring it to the house, folks. You ready for this one? The doors close in the house. Now it's time to hear how we're supposed to live behind the doors. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Paul gives rules for these three sets of household relationships. One, husbands and wives. Two, parents and children. Three, slave owners and slaves. In each of these, there is mutual responsibility to submit and love, to obey, and encourage to work hard and be fair. Examine your family and work relationships. Do you relate to others as God intended? Ephesians 5.21 for similar instructions on that. Verse 19. Here we go, guys. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. We got a big ouch there, right? It says to never do it, though. All right, you got the owner's manual. It tells you what to do. 
You think you're going to live the life of blessing and peace and honor if you don't obey what it tells you to do in it? You're not going to, do, you're not going to get all this and, and get the peace and all the fruit of the Spirit in the promised land if you don't do it. You can read it all the way until you, until you go home to be with him and never experience any of it because you never applied any of the owner's manual to your life. So guess what? So then your life never functions properly because you never do it the way God tells you to do it. That's why we're all deformed in church. And nobody can tell Christians from not unchristians out in the unbelieving world. Because they don't see people living and obeying what the Bible tells us that we come and study every week, every day, every third day, and then read every day. Do we actually apply any of it when the problems come? Or when we get angry and bitter, or do we go and start flipping out on people again? Oh, the unbelieving world don't know any of this. We do. So believe me, God holds us more accountable for it. Including myself. May it never happen. Let us actually use this stuff. How long have we been reading it? How long have you been coming to church? How long have you been studying the Bible? How long are you going to say, well, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> is there going to be a time when you say, wow, it's actually, I'm actually using it. There has to come a time when you have to make a choice and say, here it is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey it today. It's nothing to do with your feelings, it's a fact. You have the power to do it. Now it says, not, not, never, treat your, never treat them harshly. Why is submission of wives to husbands fitting for those who belong to the Lord? This may have been good advice for Christian women newly freed in Christ who found submission difficult. Okay, Paul told them that they should willingly follow their husband's leadership in Christ. But Paul had words for husbands as well. <laughs> husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. It may have also been true that Christian men used, used to the Roman custom of giving unlimited power to the head of the family were not used to treating their wives with respect and love. Real spiritual leadership involves service. Just as Christ served the disciples, even to the point of washing their feet, so the husband is to serve his wife. This means putting aside his own interests in order to care for his wife. <laughs> Get a big. It's true. A wise and Christ-honoring husband will not abuse his leadership role. At the same time, a wise and Christ-honoring wife will not try to undermine her husband's leadership. Amen. Oh, what happened? Amen. I'm not getting one. Amen to the men, right? Yeah, yeah. The women ain't saying amen. I'll come. Mm. <laughs> Listen. A Christ-honoring wife will not try to undermine her husband's leadership. Either approach causes disunity and friction in marriage. Okay? Ephesians 5, 21-23 tells us the, the same thing. In verse 20, children, always obey your parents. Back in the Old Testament, when the children didn't obey their parents, what happened? They stoned them. Today, Kids don't even 
they give the they, 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 the the kids have more rights than the parents today. It's wrong. The Bible tells us to beat the sin nature out of them. That's how bad it is in the kid. So you're going to put, put them in the corner and say, time out. Yeah, that really helps them. That really makes them, that beats it out of them, all right. Put them in time out with a cell phone and a TV show. <laughs> you going to learn from that? Oh, yeah, I learned. <laughs> no, you learned for a good schwat. Let me tell you something. When I did something wrong, my father whacked me with the belt because I disobeyed my mother. And let me tell you something. Never said it again. Never swore at it again after that. Pain's a good motivator to stop doing something. Because you love them. The Bible tells us, because we have it in us. We have a stubborn sin nature. Have you not noticed? Look at the way the kids act. Nobody has to teach them how to get fresh. It's like a natural thing. It's a natural thing for them to like do something that's wrong. You tell them, don't go there. The first thing they do is go there. You know, right? But guess what? We got big, we're all big children. We do the same thing. We're big babies. <laughs> now it says, always obey, children always obey, for this pleases the Lord. Verse 21, fathers, do not aggravate your children or they become discouraged. So there's a balance here. Children must be handled with care. They need firm discipline, administered in love. Parents should not aggravate them by nagging, deriding, or destroying their self-respect so that they quit trying. However, the opposite problem occurs when parents are afraid to correct a child for fear of stifling some aspect of his or her personality or losing his or her love. Single parents or parents who cannot spend much time with a child may be prone to indulgence. But such children especially need the security of guidance and structure. Boundaries and guidelines will not embitter a child. Instead, they will set the child free to live securely within the boundaries. That's right, right? Now, slaves, or now I'm going to put, we're not slaves anymore, we're employees. Okay? Employees, obey your earthly bosses or masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. In verse 22, Paul does not condemn or condone slavery, but explains that Christ transcends all divisions between people. Slaves are told to work as hard as though their owner were Christ himself, or work hard. But owners should be just and fair. Perhaps Paul was thinking specifically of Onesimus and Philemon. The slave and master whose conflict lay behind the letter to Philemon in the book of Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner in the Colossian church, and Onesimus had been his slave. So he must have used them as examples. You can only speculate. Now, verse 23. Work willingly, willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Every morning, I say this on the way to... As a matter of fact, they come here and say it now. Every morning they come here. I say, Lord, I'm going to work for you today. This way here, I'm already set like that because I know when I go in, all hell's going to break loose. So I have to treat everybody like I would treat Jesus. If you just do unto others as you would have them do unto you, we would get along with everybody. 
And the Bible doesn't say only if they're kind to you. Even if they're harsh and cruel, you ought to respect them like you would respect Jesus. That's what it says. Either you're going to obey what it says or you're not going to. And you're going to actually reap what you sow. Now, since creation, God has given us work to do, okay? If we could regard our work as an act of worship or service to God, such an attitude would take some of the drudgery and boredom out of it. We could work without complaining or resentment if we would treat our job problems as the cost of discipleship. What are they trying to teach me? I'm getting discipled in this job. I'm not going to run away from it. I'm going to let the job train me. And disciple me to act like Jesus. Wow, what a difference. Way to act. How about a big amen for that? If not, an ouch. Either one. We have to have the mind of Christ wherever we go. You go to work, wherever, whenever God puts in front of you, you're to honor them like you honor Jesus. Everybody. Everybody. Not just the ones you choose. Even the ones that are grinding you down because that's how we get discipled. Disciple, disciplined. None of us like it, but all of us need it. Can I get a, can I get a big amen for that? All right, thank you. That's all. Listen, the Bible is a love letter to us. And if you want to actually enjoy everything Jesus died to give you, well, you have to do what it says. And don't think it's going to happen by osmosis. It's not going to. But just remember this. God's going to give you another shot when you wake up tomorrow. And he's not going to put some hunky-dory loving person in front of you to do it. He's going to grind you. Because you're not getting it, he's going to grind you more. And grind you more until you do get it. Then you can finally say, all right, I get it, Lord. And then you see it just subside. Until then, you've got to look at your own stubborn heart and say, I'm just not submitting to God. I'm rebelling against my Creator. And look at verse 24. Close here. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and the master you are serving is Christ. Or serve Christ as your master. Now look what it says. Look at verse 25, Christian. But if you do what is wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong you've done. For God has no favorites. So don't think, let me just give you a little insight. You come to church and do all these good things for him, that God's going to put favor on you and let you get a pass. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't play favorites. If you do what is wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong. And don't think you can make it up by cleaning the church. That doesn't work that way. You will be paid back for the wrong, but God does not play favorites. We do all these things because we love the Lord, not to get favor of the Lord. <laughs> so don't get mad next time something happens. You say, well, I go to Bible study and I clean the church. Why is this all happening to me? Look in the mirror. Then you'll see why it's happening to you. God is training you. He's trying to show you something that you need to change. And if you don't want to do it, he's going to keep putting it in front of you till you do. And some of us are so stubborn, we never will. We'll just, every day, bitter and resentful and angry, come home and snap at people. But I love Jesus. And what does the unbeliever say? Unbelieving will say, full of baloney. 
That's why it's so important to live a Christ-like life so we can fill the pews. Amen? All right. Something to think about. We're going to close here. David, you want to come up and close us? And then we're going to do a song. We can bow our heads. Lord Almighty, thank you for another great message tonight. Thank you for inspiring Pastor John with this message on love through your book of Colossians. Lord, I pray that in our hearts we can get the definition of love. Love is like a puzzle piece, Lord. Love can only come together through forgiveness, mercy, patience, tolerance, kind-heartedness, tender-hearted mercy, all the things we don't have, Lord. So I just pray, please keep us teachable, keep us humble, Lord. Let us open up our hearts and submit to you, Lord, so we can at least put this puzzle piece together of love. And just as the puzzle piece is finished, Lord, and we hang it up on the wall, hang up that puzzle piece on the wall of our hearts, Lord, to remember it every single day when we wake up, Lord, because we do desperately need it. So I pray, Lord, that you please keep your guiding hand over all of us. And I just ask these things humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks, David.